0: In June, China enacted its Anti-Foreign Sanctions Law following an expedited drafting process, the country's first national statute specifically combating foreign sanctions against Chinese companies and individuals. The law states that companies in China may not implement or enforce such foreign sanctions against Chinese entities, and that Chinese entities can file lawsuits against those companies that do. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law and Practice and host of the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. With me today are Lester Ross and Kenneth Joe, Beijing-based partners at global law firm Wilmer Hale, who are also integral members of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. In today's episode, Lester and Kenneth discuss what the primary concerns are among their multinational clients, more than a month on from the new law being passed. We also discuss some of the practical impact of the new law on business, including on contractual clauses and global compliance strategies. Lester, Kenneth, welcome to the China Law Podcast. Our pleasure. I want to start by discussing some of the context of this new law, because last time both of you appeared on the podcast, it was in June 2020, where we discussed China's announcement of an unreliable entity list which was meant to counteract foreign sanctions and export controls against Chinese entities. And also, since then, we've seen the Ministry of Commerce introduce the so-called blocking statute, which was in January of this year, again, to counteract some of the foreign sanctions and export controls that we've seen imposed against Chinese entities in recent years. So Lester, I want to start with you. Can you briefly summarize what the key differences are between these two previous measures and this new law that China has introduced?
1: Yeah, first the big differences are that these are actual laws, uh, that is both the blocking statute and the uh, the sanctions, the anti-sanctions law, in contrast to the unreliable entity list. So China has sought to impose a legal structure. Uh, as we see with the anti-sanctions law. But in terms of the implementation of the anti-sanctions law, so far, we haven't seen any action. So, the sanctions law targets individuals and organizations that are essentially complying with a foreign country's sanctions. And unlike the blocking statute, which was directed against third countries, uh, let's assume for argument's sake that the United States imposed a sanction against China and then a Japanese, Korean, Norwegian, or whatever country, a company or country chose to comply with such sanctions, then China was not going to target the American entities or the United States, but rather the third country or the third party. So the anti sanctions law direct is directed against the, in this instance, uh, again, hypothetically, um, the United States, but it's directed not against the country, but rather against the individuals and organizations, as well as their principals, relatives or principals of the organizations, who are deemed responsible in some sense for the imposition of sanctions against China. And it provides some remedies, you know, private litigation is a remedy, but again, so far it hasn't been actually imposed, and therefore it still leaves China in the position of trying to determine uh, whether and how to address what is fundamentally a conflict of laws. Laws imposed by, again, in this case, the United States versus Chinese law, and how do you go about that? Uh, Are you in a position to sanction individuals and organizations? If you are, does that really make any difference? After all, you can sanction um, a think tank, and those people just won't come to China. Um, You could sanction companies but are are you actually hurting the companies themselves and then in turn hurting the Chinese economy? Well, and it's hard to imagine many companies actually playing an active role in soliciting the sanctions and advocating for the sanctions. Companies generally feel that they are victims of sanctions one way or another because they can't do business with a third country. Now for compliance with law purposes or in their own minds, uh, environmental, social, governance considerations. They may comply with such sanctions, they may have to, but companies themselves rarely go about trying to see sanctions imposed on other countries or parties.
0: Right, so unlike the blocking statute, the anti-sanctions law directly targets the country that imposed sanctions rather than any third party countries that are subjected to those sanctions. Um, and it, the law is also different from the unreliable entity list, because um, the law is a statute, while the unreliable entity list is a regulation. So do you think the fact that, as you say, these previous measures, um, they haven't actually been implemented at all, and the fact that China now introduces this high-level anti-sanctions law, do you think these two facts are related in any way?
1: Yeah, well, there are two different relations. One You could argue, and I think it's fair to say, that the blocking statute and the threat of the unreliable entity list haven't succeeded in stopping the United States and some other countries from imposing sanctions against China. So they've essentially been forced to up the ante, that is China has, but it still hasn't actually imposed sanctions against uh, the originating country. So in that sense, there's a relationship amongst them. It also has the force of a statute, which uh, certainly the unreliable entity list does not. In that sense, as well, there's a relationship. But I think it's also important to recognize that it is very difficult for a country to take contrary action uh, without hurting itself. I mean, China could, for example, impose sanctions against companies that complied with sanctions imposed, again, for argument's sake, the United States. But as narrowly focused as those sanctions, uh, that those actions might be, The risk is not only that uh, some business with that particular company or companies is affected, but that other companies will say, ooh, maybe we don't want to do business with China and we'll just be polite about it, we'll not be up in front uh, because if we engage in business, we nevertheless might find ourselves on the wrong side of some retaliatory action by China, even though all we're doing is complying with the laws of our home country, the United States. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see the Chinese government making these announcements, imposing these measures, but actually being reluctant to actually, to implement them.
2: Yeah, I would just, you know, add the emphasis of the unreliable entity list legal regime and the um, the news of anti sanctions law appears to be different, right? The unreliable entity list really is sort a of focus on security, you know, supply chain security issues, whereby, you know, the Chinese government can take, you know, countermeasures, um, and the blacklist to certain uh, foreign entities, they sort of unreasonably cease to supply uh, Chinese companies. Um, so the unreliable entity list regime seems to focus more on international trade and economic related issues. Uh, while the, the new anti-sanctions law is much broader, it covers <coughs> sanctions relating to political issues as well as others, but appears to have um, particular emphasis on political sensitive topics uh, on which sanctions are based.
0: Okay. So what kinds of inquiries have you been dealing with? Maybe we can start with Kenneth this time.
2: Yeah. We have been uh, receiving um, a lot of inquiries of our clients and also, um, you know, the foreign business community here with respect to how this law is going to be enforced. At this particular point of time, uh, it's not entirely clear how the law is going to be enforced. Uh, I would say the major concern from uh, multinational doing business in China, is you know, it's because the law basically says you know the Chinese government can take you know countermeasures against you know foreign uh, you know entities or organizations or individuals you know who sort of um, you know are involved in imposing and the decision making and enforcing or implementing foreign sanctions against Chinese organizations and individuals. So for multinational student business in China, the major concern is how this implementing or enforcing sanctions against China is going to be interpreted. Of course, for multinationals doing business in China, they have to you know, comply with Chinese law as local law where they conduct business. But on the other hand, they will have to comply with uh, the laws of their home jurisdiction, right, where the, their head office is. For example, for U.S. companies doing business in China and other you know, multinationals doing business in China, you know, they need to comply with the U.S. export control regime, right? the entity list. As well as OFAC, uh, and so the question arises is you know whether the new Chinese anti-sanctions law is going to is going to have an uh, impact on foreign multinationals' ability to you know uh, implement uh, these uh, laws and uh, regulations. You know a lot of multinationals they feel that they are likely to be forced to pick side pick a side you know in terms of enforcing uh, U.S. laws or foreign laws. Versus Chinese laws. and unfortunately, sort of they are uh, fought in between, and um, you know this, which sort of certainly adds another level of uncertainty in terms of their de- in terms of
1: doing business in China. Now, I would add to this one of the big issues that uh, our clients are concerned about, and justifiably so, is whether they have the freedom to choose with whom to do business. And so, again, assuming for argument's sake, we're talking about the United States imposes a sanction. Against China. It wouldn't necessarily, of course, apply to US companies. It would apply to any companies within the scope of the law who then are stopped, really, in order to comply with US law from doing business with particular Chinese entities. And companies have generally been able to decide on their own with whom they do business. But now there is a risk that the decision not to do business with a particular company uh, or enti- other entity. Uh, could be construed as compliance with sanctions imposed by, again, for argument's sake, the United States, or one's other another country, and that is a major concern on the part of companies. Another concern is 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 how do you govern? How does an interne- a multinational company govern its responsibilities amongst its subsidiaries around the world? If the company is, let's assume, incorporated in the United States, and it is required under United States law to comply with sanctions against China. What about its subsidiaries somewhere else in the world, including its subsidiaries in China, which are subject to Chinese law? Can they comply with the sanction as well? Well, in general, this poses a major concern for companies because they then have to decide. They're supposed to be governed as a whole. That would be true in Chinese law as well, but nevertheless, they are separately incorporated. Uh, How do you manage to do both? And how can you manage to distinguish between those different choices in advance of a problem that arises later when new sanctions are imposed? And still another issue, another concern on the part of companies is, well, let's assume the foreign company doing business in China, export or or through an FIE, foreign-invested enterprise, you comply with the sanctions imposed by the foreign country. Well, what about the reaction of consumers in China? Do they say, well, we understand you have to comply with your country's law? Or instead, as we've seen in many instances, you suddenly have consumer boycotts uh, uh, originating with at least tacit support from the authorities, which destroy, damaged, severely damages your business in China.
0: Right. So the anti sanctions law identifies, quote unquote, discriminatory restrictive measures, um, which is uh, what the law is supposed to counteract. So is there a consensus that U.S. sanctions and export controls, for example, that these would count as uh, such measures covered by the new law?
1: Well, I, th- I think we can't say that it, I speak with any certainty until this some of these measures are, are identified, if they are identified as all. But certainly, it would seem that they would constitute discriminatory restrictive measures. However, again, I think the Chinese authorities are looking for means to make it seem like they're going to take action, but they're still reluctant to actually take action uh, using these tools because, firstly, they're difficult to, to handle. And, you know, If you impose one and it's ineffective, do you have to keep imposing more? Or if it is effective, does it actually hurt your economy? even more than it hurts the other country's economy. So it's it's difficult to anticipate how frequently or extensively these measures may be imposed. We haven't seen any so far, but the measures that you're referring to would seem to fit the bill.
2: Yeah, I would like to add that it's, you know, as I said, it's, it's not entirely clear whether, you know, OFAC or export Control measures cost you know, discriminatory restrictive restricted measures. The government, the Chinese government has not yet made any sort of further interpretation, you know, with respect to the definition of discriminatory restrictive measures. As a matter of fact, the Chinese government is aware that, you know, U.S. corporations doing business in China and other multinationals doing business in China, having been enforcing uh, these um, uh, regulatory regimes um, in China. But if we step back a second, look at the The anti-sanctions law right the new law seems to place particular emphasis on foreign government agencies and officials which are advocating uh organizing or otherwise you know actively involved in imposing and enforcing sanctions against china right i mean for multinationals they don't really have a choice right they are not participating in the legislation process They're not participating, they're not involved in the decision making uh, process. So, um, you know, the kind of argument in terms of the uh, OFAC or export control measures may not constitute discriminatory restrictive measures is that these are really based on rules, existing laws and regulations, which apply to, you know, it's not, you know, single out China uh, per se, it applies to, you know, applies on a worldwide basis. So hopefully there is going to be some further interpretation or clarification Made in this connection. One thing to add is if, if these are these measures are going to be viewed as discriminatory, uh, restrictive measures, then um, you know, U.S. companies, for example, which have stopped supply to Chinese companies because of export control entity list, uh, they would have been uh, you know sort of uh, penalized under the um, unreliable entity list um, already, right? Which was promulgated you know a while ago. Um, so it's it's not entirely clear, but we. You know, we will think that this new anti sanctions law plays particular emphasis uh, on foreign government agencies as well as officials which are actively involved in formulating and enforcing or soliciting uh, advocating um, the sanctions against China. The emphasis does not appear to focus on multinationals which do not necessarily have a choice at this point. However, the law is still evolving and, um, you know, we will need to... uh, Wait and see how the law is going to be enforced.
0: Okay, so if we move away from the discussion of the strategy of the law itself to some of the strategies that companies might want to adopt moving forward, Lester, you mentioned earlier about the challenge of multinationals in terms of handling their global operations and their subsidiaries around the world. Based on your interactions with your clients and also your your overall experience, what is your assessment of how prepared multinationals are in terms of their trade compliance systems, Um, especially their preparedness for dealing with um, potentially competing compliance requirements on both sides of the Pacific?
1: Yeah, I think the Chinese legislation and regulations are are leading companies that are involved in business in China to review um, their policies, their playbooks, in order to ensure that they are as current as possible so that they can minimize the risk of being caught up in a, you might say, a sanctions war uh, or a retaliatory war between China and another country, whichever countries we're talking about. So it is a major concern. I think large companies already have, generally, have policies in this regard. But changes in law and regulation impose an obligation on them to check and see whether what they have is adequate to address the new uh, circumstances. And, uh, and we find that a number of companies find that they have to make some adjustments Uh, because um, the policies, which may not have been looked at for a few years, are suddenly inadequate, one, to address all the changes in law. But in addition to that, with respect to their uh, foreign-invested enterprises doing business in China, uh, the teams here may not be fully aware and trained in how these policies are supposed to work. So They have to be trained or retrained so that they don't find themselves in difficulty and so, alternatively, that they are prepared when and if a contingency arises, how to respond, which may be to say, well, you have to talk to the head office. You can't, we don't have responsibility in this instance.
2: You know, just in terms of the uh, the, uh, the sanctions, right? I mean, uh, the uh, the new sanctions laws, I have to say, it applies to sort of, from, you know, all business in China, right? It does not only apply to multinationals. It also applies to Chinese companies doing business. For example, in the financial industry, A lot of Chinese financial institutions are doing conducting business in the U.S., Right, the banks, the Chinese banks in the U.S., the Chinese uh, insurance companies and and others. They are also facing the same issue as multinationals are facing now under this new sanctions law. Chinese financial institutions doing business in the U.S. also need to comply with the U.S. legal regime, including OFAC and others. It's really sort of, you know, a sort of issue for all the industry players. And in terms of uh, what kind of sort of advice that we might have for multinationals, you know, doing business in China to mitigate the risks. Um, so one thing we have, you know, in mind is, yes, we have been advising uh, our clients in financial industry and other industrial sectors is to, you know, perhaps also reveal their agreements, their user agreements with their customers, right, to, you know, include the necessary compliance obligations where the uh, multinationals, can, you know, have a right to sort of review the business, reassess the business relationship or to take some, um, you know, measures, if there is a uh, potential violation of law in the jurisdiction where they conduct the business as a global company. So, um, you know, the reason, you know, in China, you know, in addition to sanctions law, there's also a contract law, right? So basically, the Chinese contract law supports the principle of freedom of contract. So uh, in this connection, it might be um, advisable for multinationals to uh, consider review or re-review their contract, their standard contracts with the customers or user agreements in China to make sure that they have necessary protection from a contractual perspective to mitigate the risk in this country.
0: That's a very interesting point because these sorts of contractual clauses and terms um, that deal with the consequences of sanctions and export controls, I'm sure that multinationals will be very accustomed to having these sorts of clauses in their contracts. Uh, They'll be very familiar with them. Um, But do you think there's any possibility that these clauses will be flagged uh, as the implementation of foreign sanctions that this new anti-sanctions law is precisely uh, trying to counteract?
2: Well, I mean, it's it's a very good question. I mean, the short answer is, um, you know, it's not entirely clear at this point how these uh, contractual clauses will be treated or viewed or interpreted in the future. But at least at this point of time, as we know, a lot of multinational doing business in China right, they do have, you know, such compliance process in their uh, customer agreements, including sort of compliance with, um, you know, US export control regime, including, uh, you know, for financial industry in particular, complies with uh, foreign, you know, sort of, uh, you know, sanctions, sort of, you know, with respect to targeting, uh, you know, anti-money laundering, sort of counter-terrorist financing, etc., etc. And so far, we're not aware that any of these clauses have been uh, held determined by the Chinese court as invalid. You
1: know, and I would add in term, and with respect to those kinds of rules, particularly, uh, China has actually moved again aggressively, I shouldn't say aggressively, has a different implication within the last number of months to more closely conform their uh, rules with respect to financial services to those adopted in the rest of the world under the Financial Action Task Force. So it's not as though China, in terms of uh, averse, is opposed to doing what the rest of the world and in terms of any particular country wants to do. Uh, China also recognizes that its companies are operating internationally. As Kenneth said, they have to comply with the laws of the jurisdictions in which they operate.
0: Okay, so we'll move on to my last question then, which is about the key areas of uncertainty moving forward um, that businesses and lawyers like yourselves uh, would most want clarification. We've already discussed um, the need for, clarifi- uh, for clarification surrounding what specific foreign sanctions would be targeted uh, or whether compliance with those sanctions would constitute implementation or enforcement of those sanctions as well as whether um, sanctions-related contractual clauses would be an example of such implementation, implementation or enforcement. Um, but are there any other areas that you'd want to see clarified?
1: Well, I think another issue, if this uh, moves forward, is for China to clarify the governmental bodies. I mean, So far, they talk about mechanisms, uh, typically involving the Ministry of Commerce and the National uh, Development and Reform Commission, NDRC, Uh, But obviously, other government agencies are also involved, and it's not clear how these mechanisms are to be constituted, and if so, how they are to operate, whether they're under supervision, uh, ultimately, by the state council or some other body. So, once you go ahead and promulgate a law, or indeed a high-level regulation, there's still a great deal of additional effort that has to take place or should take place in order to make the implementation of that law or regulation operate in a um, predictable fashion. And so far, we haven't seen very much in this regard.
2: Yeah, exactly. In addition to the uh, the points that you have mentioned, there are also a number of others of points. The new law mentioned that the state council will establish a work mechanism uh, for different You know, state council departments to coordinate on countermeasures. But so far, there has not been any further guidelines in this connection. And we do not know whether which state council department will take the lead in enforcing the law uh, in the future. For example, in the past, right, I mean, uh, you know, in order to enforce the financial services industry, PBOC, People's Bank of China, has been the main regulator in terms of, you know, formulating or so sort we're of instructing the industry, the financial services industry, to enforce sanctions uh, adopted by the uh, United Nations Security Council, for example, where they will sort of, uh, you know, so sort of publish sort of the internal sort of policies or rules for the financial institutions to follow. But in terms of this new sanctions law, anti-sanctions law, it's really not entirely clear which government entity is going to take the lead in the future. So that's something that needs to be clarified. Uh, in addition to that, the um, uh, the, uh, the new law also provides that the determination with respect to you know the blacklist or you know for the countermeasures, uh, as well as imposition of countermeasures, are final. Although the law says such determinations may be changed by relevant depart- government department depending on you know, the the actual situation or later developments, it's not entirely clear whether the parties which are adversely impacted by these countermeasures will have recourse to judicial review. That's something very important, but that's something which is currently missing from the new law. So hopefully, you know, in the future, there will be um, more clarifications in this connection. Because as, as Les mentioned, in, in the United States, you know, whenever governments are promulgate some new rules or regulations, there is a mechanism for companies to petition, right? But under this new intersection, so it looks like that whatever decision made by the government is going to be final. And there's really, does not appear to be any ready recourse for judicial review with respect to these kind of that's something that to be considered. I, I would just
1: add one more point too, which is uh, whether this law is intended to apply and does have reached to Hong Kong and Macau as well as the mainland. It refers to the territory of the People's Republic of China, which would include uh, Hong Kong and Macau, But if it is so imposed, that would, among other things, further diminish the claims made by China and Hong Kong that Hong Kong is separately administered, Uh, maybe not for national security purposes, but for economic purposes. And yet the sanctions regime is very much an economic uh, law. It's not so much national security, but it's really directed to economics. And uh, so this is another issue that uh, is at this point not entirely clear.
0: Okay, and what about the uncertainty for law firms themselves? Do you think there might be any risks uh, for firms that are working with uh, clients that are um, complying with foreign sanctions, and that might be the targets of uh, Chinese countermeasures?
2: Yeah, I would like to add. The um, there is some potential risks, risks right, with respect to the uh, the China business operations of foreign law firms under this uh, new sanctions law. Because you know, under Article 11 of the um, the sanctions law, it provides that all sort of organizations or individuals in China need to comply as an obligation to comply with the, uh, the Chinese government sanction regime which sort of does not necessarily sort of, uh, you know, exclude, you know, for foreign law firms, China offices from this obligation, from this pretty broad obligation. So so there's a risk that, for example, if Chinese government announced certain sanctions against, you know, U.S. individuals or, you know, uh, uh, officials, organizations or, you know, EU individuals, organizations or other foreign parties, then the China offices, uh, in theory, if, if we interpret this so, course, broadly, we also have an obligation you know, not to deal with, not to represent these, these parties. Uh, but of course, I mean, a you know, lot of multinational law firms that have uh, worldwide operations, it, you know, the, uh, the matter does not need to be handled directly by the China office. But I wanted to point out that you know, until there is a further clarification disconnection, otherwise, I think broadly, so there is a risk for uh, foreign law firms, China offices.
0: Great. Well, Lester, Kenneth, thanks for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Make sure to check out our website, ChinaLawAndPractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest Chinese legal and business news through our in-depth analyses, including contributions from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations of PRC legislation going back 33 years. Stay tuned, and thanks again for listening.